Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs and your host for this episode. In the 19th century, as debates over slavery grew increasingly impassioned in England and the United States, personal accounts of suffering, escape, and redemption from previously enslaved people served an important role in shaping public understanding of the abolitionist cause. But sadly, while legalized slavery is now abolished everywhere, human trafficking remains an all-too-prevalent issue in many places around the world. Today, we're talking to Laura Murphy. She's Associate Professor of English at Loyola University, New Orleans, where she's also the director of the Modern Slavery Research Project. Her 2014 book, Survivors of Slavery, Modern Day Slave Narratives, published by Columbia University Press, explored human trafficking through first-person accounts of dozens of people who had been enslaved in the last 20 years. She's currently working as a fellow at the center on a new project that re-examines the emergence of the slave narrative tradition in the late 20th century. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. When I read your proposal, something really struck me. You note that the world has witnessed slavery's legal abolition in every country in the world, but we still have an estimated 46.8 million people enslaved. That's a staggering number. And I'm wondering, how does this kind of number compute with our modern day notions of slavery and what slavery is? That's a really basic question, it seems, but in fact, it's an incredibly debatable question. For the most part, when people talk about modern slavery, we're talking about something you would recognize as slavery, people who are forced to work against their will, typically for little or no pay, for the profit of someone else, and under threat of extraordinary violence. So what's happening in the 21st century doesn't typically take the form of chattel slavery, which we saw in the United States in the 19th century, where there was an actual legal ownership and slavery was enshrined in the law. Like you said, slavery um, exists in every country in the world today, but it is actually illegal in every country in the world. But legality isn't necessarily the heart of what constitutes slavery, is it? Whether it's legal or it's illegal, if you bind someone to your service, force them to work, don't pay them, and don't let them walk away, you're enslaving them. And so when most people are talking about slavery, they talk about that experience of extraordinary captivity, forced labor, and inability to exercise one's free will. And so that's what I'm concerned about today. Your work is about modern slave narratives. When we think about slave narratives, I think, at least in the United States, we would tend to go to 19th century accounts of African-American people who have been forcibly taken and brought on ships to this country to exactly the kind of thing you were describing earlier as chattel slavery. How are the kinds of slave narratives that you study different or the same from early instantiations of these kinds of narratives? When I first recognized that slavery still exists, and it was a real recognition for me, a real moment of of sudden life-changing catharsis, actually, to recognize that people are enslaved today, I immediately, as an English professor, immediately thought, wait, but are there slave narratives? Are there people writing about this? Um, Are there people thinking in terms of activism? Uh, are Are they imagining themselves like Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth, and indeed there were. There were people who were writing um, very short narratives, who were up on podiums testifying to their experience and, and, and acting as activists against slavery. And there are also people who are writing full book-length narratives like Frederick Douglass did of their experiences from the time they were born to the moment they recognized that they were in fact enslaved and through their experience of trying to escape and their escape and eventual freedom. These narratives exist. In fact, there are about 40 of 
of these book-length, full-on narratives that have been published around the world um, that I've found. And the narratives are interestingly similar. They tell a wide variety of different kinds of stories about labor. But in fact, as was the case in the 19th century, today people don't dwell a ton on the labor. You would think that the essence of slavery is labor, right? And so the experiences that people would describe would be making bricks or fishing, you know, under deep water or um, selling sex or, uh, you know, farming or whatever it is, the work that they're doing. But people don't describe picking cotton in the slave narratives of the 19th century either. They describe their complete, utter dedication to getting out of it. And that's what we see in these narratives too. Paul Lovejoy talks about the slave narrative as the freedom narrative. And I think, in fact, there's an interesting trend in the slave narrative to think more about one's promised freedom and one's expectation for what freedom is than there is a commitment to talking about the nitty-gritty day-to-day labor and torture of slavery. One of the things you write about is that thinking about modern slave narratives really also complicates, though, our notions of what it means to be free Mm -hmm. and what freedom means. Yeah. Uh, You know, when I was telling you this part just a second ago about how Lovejoy talks about the freedom narrative, one of the things I'm writing about right now is about what I consider to be maybe the not yet freedom narrative, that while they're obsessed with freedom, what happens once they are emancipated or once they emancipate themselves is that so many of the people who are writing about slavery in the 21st century find that their lives are still circumscribed by systemic injustices that they thought might have been part and parcel of slavery, but in fact are part and parcel of global capitalism. And so a lot of what we see are people who are stymied in their attempts to attain a kind of um, substantive freedom through attaining work or attaining um, levels of citizenship that are stymied, as I was saying, by systemic racism, by poverty, by um, statelessness as a refugee. And these things keep them in a position that they feel still metaphorically enslaves them, still holds them captive to some extent. It's differentiated clearly from literal enslavement under a person's control. But even while out of a person's control, essentially we've set up societal barriers to people's being free. And they're better able to see it, I think, than we can. When you characterize these books as being part of a kind of genre, It's not just a move that you make as a scholar, but you're also saying that these people are telling their stories, actively engaged with what they're doing and with these as narratives. Is that right? Right. So as an English professor, when I first approached this issue, I wasn't entirely sure that I had a whole lot to contribute to the movement, the the sort of anti-slavery movement that's emerging, re-emerging now. But the truth is that a lot of this movement and a lot of the scholarship about slavery today is really grounded in social science research, statistics, um, social work, you know, these kinds of things, and and sort of real on-the-ground work. And a lot of times we think of humanistic endeavors as being somewhat abstracted from that. But in fact, the life narratives of people who have been enslaved are incredibly telling as to what are the experiences of slavery, but also how do we kind of encode slavery in our discourse? How do we encode freedom? What are the concepts of freedom that we take for granted that a person who's enslaved might call into question? And so one of the things I'm interested in is looking at how genre and analysis, literary literary analytical skills, can give us new insight into slavery that might be missed 
discussed by people who are thinking about exactly how many people are enslaved or what precisely is the definition of slavery. But also looking at genre allows us to think about the way in which our expectations for the way people narrativize their experiences might limit to some extent what we can know about slavery or what we can know about any human experience. So I'm finding that as I look to the way the narratives are shaped, they're shaped to meet the expectations of a nonprofit audience or an activist audience or even an armchair activist audience. They want to get people engaged. And so the narratives are often, the narratives often conform to our expectations and we read for our expectations and we can't see, for instance, these critiques of freedom or lack of freedom. We can't see the critiques of the capitalist system. We can't see the kinds of claims that the slave narratives are making that lie under the systemic critiques, especially, that lie underneath the narratives because the genre conventions are really about a rags-to-riches autobiography that shows the person coming from absolutely nothing up to the successful activists that they become by the end of the book. And that story feels really good, and that's what the genre requires, but written into that in the interstices of those narratives are calls for greater justice than simply becoming an activist. So in a way, because we're reading it as that kind of genre, we're failing to see some of the other things that these narratives can offer us. That's right. And in a lot of ways, we're writing it out of the, the narrative because we, you know, people, editors and, and ghost writers and publishers all have a hand in editing those texts, too, before they even get to us. So who knows what all is being left on the cutting room floor? In your work, you also talk about Somali mom. What can you tell us about her? And what does her story teach us about slave narratives and also about our consumption of these narratives as readers? You've caught me in the middle of a very difficult chapter writing about Somali mom. So Somali mom is a woman who's written her own life narrative. She told the story of her experience of having been enslaved as a sex worker as a child and sexually exploited as a child. And a couple of summers ago, her narrative was called out as a fraud. A Newsweek writer found uh, several people on the ground in Cambodia who disputed some of the parts of her story, and it kind of blew up. And as a result, Somali Mom's foundation was shuttered, and people have largely kind of disregarded her entirely. So what we expected of Somali Mom's autobiography is different from what we would expect of anyone else's autobiography, and the same may be true of any slave narrative. Somali Mom's case helps us to see the way in which the slave narrator's position is different from your typical autobiographer's position. In an autobiography, we expect the person will write about their life and their coming to recognition of their own subjectivity. But there are several additional layers that a person who is enslaved has to combine into what is essentially their name on the cover of their book. The person who is enslaved has to prove, in in fact, that they were enslaved, that slavery exists at all, which is a level of proof that most people don't have to go to to prove that they were, in fact, a teacher or they were, in fact, the president. Um, She has to prove, in fact, that slavery exists at all. So that's one level that is a burden on her production of who she is as Somali mom. Second, she has to prove that she is representative of all other people who've ever suffered this crime so that she can make a claim that it's not just her story, that there are other people out there and we need to go and act. And then on top of that, there's this expectation that she is a movement, 
Like her name, her name is the name of her foundation, the Smalley Mom Foundation. And in a way, she's created this autobiographical movement that rests on her name being true to the thing that is represented in the text. And that's never the case. There are always fractures and fissures and fraud in every autobiography. Somali Mom is not allowed to do that. And so when the name of Somali Mom is questioned, the entire movement is questioned. And that's a burden that is far too much for any one name to bear. And I think that that's probably true for almost all slave narrators. And therefore, in a way, our expectations for the narrative to represent so many things actually both creates the celebrity activist and destroys them. So it's really this burden of being authentic and unique, but really being representative, which is a kind of tension that I can't imagine having to negotiate as you tell your very private story for this hungry and kind of discerning or particular kind of consumer of, of this genre. That's right. And on top of that, she has a ghostwriter who's mediating everything she says too. And then she gets held responsible for every little detail that's in the book, even though she hardly even speaks the language that it was published in. So it's, it's a very complicated situation, and the results of it are so damning. You know, people are able to say the entire movement is a fraud. They're just legislating against boogeymen. That's an actual quote from an article. Um, there's so much out there saying that this proves that everything she said is not true and everything that everyone in the anti-slavery movement is saying is untrue. And it's just too much for any one of these people to bear. For you as a scholar, you're really immersed in these stories that must be very difficult to read about and to live with every day. What is it like to do this kind of work? It's undeniably important, but these stories are hard. Working with the narratives of slavery that I work with and with the survivors of slavery that I actually work with personally often, it can be challenging because it is incredibly emotionally um, difficult experiences that I'm dealing with. But what ends up sort of solidifying my commitment to continuing to work on this are the very survivors themselves. I see them powering through some of the most difficult work I've ever seen anyone do, confronting their most horrific memories to be able to act, be activists on behalf of other people who are still suffering. And I think, you know, um, who am I to, to turn away from this necessary work? And so their lives, as hard as they are for me to carry sometimes as my work, inspire me to keep doing it. What's your hope for this work? I think I have a few different goals. One is that as I critique the ways the human rights movement has taken up humanitarian narratives, that instead of people becoming defensive and saying, that's not what we do, or Murphy's wrong, that we really become very circumspect about how we hear the voices of people who are the victims of human rights abuses and that we become more critical consumers of those voices and that we actually move those voices to the center of the work we do. But I'm also interested in bringing more of a humanistic approach to a field that is dominated by social science approaches. And it's no grudge towards my social science colleagues, but I think that the way we approach we approach the way people talk about their experiences is incredibly valuable and is often overlooked in, in studies that the answer is simply yes or no. 
it's never simply yes or no for us. We're always interested in the gray areas. We're always interested in the underlying sources of the problem, in the in the way people phrase things. And I want more of that kind of humanistic thinking to be incorporated into this work because any human rights movement is a long game. So we've seen that we can legislate against domestic violence or we can legislate against driving without a seatbelt. We can legislate against those things. It doesn't change the fact that they exist. What has to change is the way people culturally approach those things. Cultural change has to happen. And cultural change is always a long game. And that's the work that we do. We are used to, as humanities researchers, we are used to playing that long game of cultural change, of slowly trying to rework the way people understand other people's lives. That's the work I'm dedicated to, and that, I hope, is sort of the long-term outcome of this kind of work. Thank you, Laura, and thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.